So we are going to start our Lenten journey in this idea of grace. We are going to look at, uh, kind of in a backdoor way, uh, one of our confessions in the three forms of unity that we hold as a Reformed church is the Canons of Dort. Uh, and that is, we know, a lot of us uh, may know it as kind of the tulip analogy. And that's all well and good, but I'm not a huge fan of that as far as um, everyday language and how we go about presenting it. And so uh, Jim Osterhaus back in the 90s put out a kind of refreshed look at it where he got away from the tulip ideology uh, and what that meant, even though all of the things he used in his acronym FAITH. Um, so it's the acronym FAITH. We're going to go kind of have that be the spine for us as we go through the book uh, or to go through the season of Lent. Uh, but if you are more, you just want to go tulip and you want to go can as a door while we go through this, by, you will not do wrong by doing that. Uh, but we will be using the acronym FAITH. There are many other acronyms out there. Some I think are good and some are not at all. But uh, we're going to be going through uh, this idea of faith. But I want you to complete these statements or these phrases as a culture we kind of know them to be true. And I'm going to kind of figure out, and I'm going to ask the question, why we know these to be true. If something sounds too good to be true, it is, or it probably is, okay? Uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch, okay? Why not breakfast and dinner? I don't know. Uh, no pain, no gain, without pain, okay? That makes more sense, good, okay? God helps those which is fairly unbiblical. And so we like to use it in the church. Uh, feel free to ask me this week why I believe that it is. Break me off a piece of that. I just wanted to see if anyone would do that. So I appreciate that. Uh, and so we learn these phrases kind of as these like many truths in life. We learn these phrases as kind of part of our culture, if you will, for whatever it is. Uh, that last one being a jingle. A lot of times we, we, we utilize kind of jingles. We could go through probably over 100 commercials or different jingles for companies that all of us would know. And, and we never really think about it, but it's just something that gets indoctrinated into who we are, right? I mean, I, I, all I did was that little bit of a, of a Kit Kat slogan and most of you knew it, even though a lot of you were never going to say that or sing it in the church, and I respect that. But understand, it's something that you don't, when's the last time you thought about Kit Kats? Exactly, exactly. you don't, right? Some of you probably don't even like them, but it's something that you just know. Isn't that weird? That there are things that when you hear it, your mind just goes to it. Uh, for me, uh, the, the Rem uh, Remember the Titans soundtrack, it has been so ingrained in who I am Right, that whenever I hear it, I automatically go to that movie. That we have these things that bring up kind of different either products or movies, scenarios, actors, all those kind of things. And you don't really spend a lot of time on it. You don't study it, but it just kind of becomes who you are. And today we're going to start the conversation about the word grace. And the thing about grace, it gets, in my opinion, sometimes overused in the church to the point where you have now this thing called cheap grace. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks a lot about that in his writings, that, that believers take this understanding of Christian liberty, that because we are saved, we can do anything we want. And 
Though it is in some ways true, as Paul says, everything is permissible, not everything is beneficial. But this understanding of cheap grace is that I know it's the prayer on a Monday that, Lord, I'm probably going to sin on a, uh, over the weekend, and I know you'll forgive me. And so it's this understanding of grace that we really need to align with when it comes to who we are as not only individuals, but as a church. And in a culture today where it's all about making it on your own. Our culture is all about you work your way, you earn the right, you, do, you climb the ladder, all of these things. We've talked about it before in different sermons. But one of the things that we have to really break through is this understanding that we have, um, let me find in my notes, is that when we work towards things, it's kind of like this work ethic that even we, we have this thing called the Protestant work ethic, that we will work towards the things that we want. In order to earn, we will work for it. In order to do these things, to climb the ladder, to put the notches in the belt, we will get whatever's coming to us if we earn it. I can look out and see a lot of very hardworking people that have that mentality. But in the Reformed faith, in the Christian faith, that can be very damaging. That can be very dangerous if we have this kind of works righteousness, this understanding that we can work our way to the top of the cross. We can work our way to that vertical relationship with Jesus. And just basic Christianity, that is not the case that there is this thing called grace. And we're going to look at grace, and this thing of grace is so rooted in God's character that it really needs to be the center of who we are. That we should not only be people who have received grace, that we are people that should extend grace. And there's the rub. We love receiving grace. I don't know anyone that's like, no, God, I don't need your grace. Like we love to receive it. We love to receive when those things are good things are happening to us. But the question I want to start today, that's going to take us 40 days, is what in fact is grace? What is this thing that we're talking about? Grace is a multifaceted diamond. There's no single definition to describe grace and what it's about. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at different aspects of grace. One definition that I found is the definition of grace is God's unbelievable accepting of us, okay? Someone else has said that grace is, is the completely undeserved loving commitment God has made to us, fair? Another definition is God's love in action, okay? Or grace is the face God wears when he looks at my failures. Those aren't, those aren't bad. I don't know if they go all the way, but it definitely gets us to an understanding that grace is something God gives, grace is something we need. But how about some of you? How would you define grace? Any brave souls want to define grace this morning? Some guys may look and just point at their wives, and that's very nice, you know, that that is a great grace that you've been given in life, absolutely. Anyone want to define grace today? Interesting. Interesting. We're a Christian Reformed church. Reformed theology is our base, right? It is our, our, our lens of reading the scriptures in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And grace is all over what we believe. Yet if you're going to sit and try to define it, 
it's kind of awkward. It's kind of weird because I don't want to say something that's incorrect, but I know in my heart that's what it is. It's kind of this understanding of I, I recognize it when I see it or I recognize it when I receive it or I recognize it when I extend it. But there's an understanding here that I think we need. We need to be able to not only see grace in our lives, we have to understand grace in our lives in order to really to, to give grace, to expel grace in our lives to the world, a world that desperately needs God's grace. The world does not desperately need Jim's grace because Jim's grace is flawed. But God's grace, on the other hand, is something everybody needs. And here's the thing, whether they know it or not. So we're going to start Article 1, and this is a good place to start. This is from the Canons of Dort. Article 1, it says, Since all people have sinned in Adam and have come under the sentence of the curse and eternal death, God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to leave the entire human race in sin and under the curse and to condemn them on account of their sin. As the, as the apostle says, the whole world is liable to the condemnation of God, Romans 3.19. All have sinned and and are depraved of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So understand that in order to understand grace, we have to understand some pretty bad news about ourselves. Now, I don't revel in the fact that I can just look out at everybody and say we're all depraved, we're all sinners, though it's true, but the word that we're going to use, and the word that Jim Osterhaus uses, is the word fallen, that we are all fallen people. Now, I think it's interesting, just going back, kind of jumping sermon series, last week we, we were talking about angels, right, in the last sermon series of whose sermon is it anyway, and that's kind of where we ended with the fallen angels, Lucifer and his fallen angels, and uh, I know some of you had questions about that, but we're not even talking about the angelic, we're talking about those made in God's image who are fallen. Ephesians 2.1 reminds us, that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 today. You can leave that one up there. That in order to understand what life is for the believer, to understand every day when you wake up is that you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. Now, how we engage with this, how we live that out is case by case. I mean, this is really bad news. I don't know anybody that can look at that and go, yes. I am dead in my trespasses and my sins. The world kind of loves it because they don't define it that way. They don't, re they don't recognize the good and the bad. They don't recognize the damned and the saved. They don't recognize any of that. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Who can tell me the key word in that phrase? Were. It would look very different today if I said, you, us, I, you, me, whoever, are dead in our trespasses and sins. When the church of Ephesus heard this, this was an encouragement from the Apostle Paul to remind them of something. And I think it's the reminder you and I need every day that we were dead in trespasses and sins. I know that's not what you came to hear today, but everybody here was dead in sin. 
that had trespasses against God of thought, word, and deed as I prayed in the congregational prayer. You're dead in your sins. I'm dead in my sins. This side of the sanctuary, that side, the cars on Ridge Road. Everybody was dead in trespasses and sin. This is the result of the fall and the blood that is in our DNA, or the sin that is in our blood, in our DNA, that we are all sinners. And isn't that how the story goes? Or how the song that we learned growing up, red and yellow, black and white, we are all dead in his sight. No? I don't, this seems like a good theological, good reform song, right, to teach our kids. Uh, Lisa, are you here this morning? Are you going to teach that to the light? Oh, they don't have Lighthouse today. But, I mean, that is really a song we should teach. <laughs> Someone said no. I'm going to push back and go, but it is. Yeah, we don't probably want our kids going around singing that song because it sounds like a 90s Green Day song, you know, that they did to some guitar riff, but understand that that is really the task at hand. That because of sin in the world, we were all dead without any hope of revival, any hope of having that relationship with the Creator God. Unfortunately, it's true. And we have to start there. There's an acceptance here that if you're going to accept the grace of God, there is an acceptance here that you are a fallen human being and a bunch of you just tightened up. You don't like that. But you have to. I have to. We have to recognize that we were dead in our sin in order to understand what life really means. Because if we're not going to acknowledge that we are dead in our sin, then the life that we have in Jesus doesn't matter. Because here we're going to do this on our own. We're going to eat the apple. We're going to do all the things. But on this side is the understanding that we have been saved by grace, which we'll get to in a second, that we were dead in our sins. We were done. But that wasn't the final plan, or else this would be a very depressing sermon series. And quite frankly, I'd be out of a job. If that was the case and that was it, end of story, do not pass go, do not collect $200, what is the point of Christianity then? If this was you are dead and that's it, end scene. I think we'd close up shop. What do you think this building could turn into if it wasn't a church? Bob, what do you think this church could be or what this building would be without a church in it? Could be a nice restaurant. Yeah, sure. That would be some nice ambiance. But God was not done. God does not leave us in a fallen position. Ephesians 2, 2, starting with verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, the, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So that's where we were, and that's what God did about it. 
I'm going to read from Jim Osterhaus. We were dead in our transgressions and sin, but God made us alive. To underscore the point, let's say I am a teacher and you are one of my students. When you enter the classroom one day, you find me stretched out on the floor, very sick. Nevertheless, you ask, uh, you ask me to bring you a glass of water. Although I am very ill, I manage to drag myself down the hall to the drinking fountain to get your water. It is very difficult to do, but I am able, and I return to the classroom with your water. Now imagine that you entered the classroom, found me stretched out on the floor dead, and said to me, Jim, go get me a glass of water. What would happen? Nothing. I would not be able to do what you asked because I was dead. I would be completely incapable of responding to your request. Humanity's fall into sin is like that. It is so complete that it renders all people totally unable to respond to the message of salvation. That is what it means to be dead in our transgressions and sins. This is terrible news. And the effect of sin is to make us totally unable to save ourselves. How can we possibly be saved? If we are spiritually dead, how can we be made alive? Here is the good news. God does it. So we have to understand that in this road of Lent, in this road of understanding grace, we have to admit that we have zero percent to do with receiving that grace. And we're going to talk about that tension. We're going to talk about it because there are some of us that love ourselves so much that we actually go, well, I just want 5%. I'll give 95%. Jesus, you do the work. I really want that because we want it to have control. We want it so we can manipulate the system. We want it so we can say we had something to do with it. But if that's really what you want, then you have to take the good with the bad. Because in order for that grace to be poured on us every day of our life, for that relationship to be made whole in Jesus Christ, it took the cross. Spoiler alert, that's where we're going to end, right? That's where, the, that's where the season of Lent ends, that Monday, Thursday, which we'll have a service. Good Friday, we'll be online, and then we'll come together and celebrate Easter, Lord willing. In 32 days, we're going to come. That will be Monday, Thursday. Don't do the math. I already did it. Where Jesus is going to give the greatest sermon illustration of grace in the history of the world. That Jesus is going to use a ritual of marriage to understand what grace actually is. And on come that Monday, Thursday, he will claim us as something. And he will walk us to the new reality with the Last Supper. That that's going to mean something. And here's the kicker. We have absolutely no skin in the game. We can't do anything in it except to just receive it. And friends, I understand that's a struggle. I understand that some of you are going to struggle with this, this, this sermon series, the next 40 days, because you think that you're that bad. That you think that there is nothing that you do in life that is deserved of God's grace. 
guess what? You're right. There isn't. But you have not strayed so far that God is not right there with you. That the Father is not there ready to pick you up. To declare that you are His. And ask that you follow Him. That you live your life with that grace. Ephesians 2. 8 through 10. In of ourselves we would stay fallen. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Pause there. This is the real he gets us. Right? I don't care about all of that Super Bowl commercial drama. This is the understanding. Because what would that look like? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God. Not as a result of works. But then he took that boast out. What if Paul didn't put that in there? I guarantee you that you and I would boast about it. Because we have that in our nature. It's the exact reason why we need that grace. For we are his workmanship. We are not our own workmanship. We have not created ourselves. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So do you know and hear this today? You are a good work. I am a good work that is still being worked on that still has a job to do, that is still an active vessel for the gospel, for grace incarnate, which is Jesus Christ. So for the one that comes today and says, I am, I'm not a good work. I am too far gone. I am too sinful. God can never love me. God can never engage. God, stop. Stop fighting. Stop trying to do this on your own. It doesn't work. It's only going to leave you exhausted. It's only going to leave you burnt out. It's only going to believe you resenting yourself. But receive that we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We get Jesus, right? Jesus dies for us. He is then illuminated, regenerated in our heart to do good work. There's no such thing as Christian passivity when it comes to just living out the life of Christ. That we get to work. We have jobs to do. We have a Christ to point to and grace to give out. And God knew all of this. That we would walk in him. I land the plane with this. We live in a world where we want to be in control of our own story. Our own rags to riches to become our own ego monster. Another word for idol worshiping, or another word for idol worshiping sin is when we do that for ourselves and we think we can manipulate the system. We think we can do all of these things because we're always going to have this thing inside of us. But we can't. And of ourselves we would stay fallen forever because we actually love being fallen. Ask that question of yourself this week. Why do I love sin so much? Why do I love being in a fallen posture in my life? The Bible makes it very clear that sin is so easily entangled in us. 
that it's actually part of the identity, and hear this, that we used to have. Thank God he doesn't leave us fallen. Thank God he picks us up, he dusts us off, and does something incredible. More on that next week. Let's pray.